This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew Wapit. Utah has one of the highest rates of autism in the United States. Our modern view of human development and diversity is strongly influenced by the medical model of disability. Under the medical model, any condition or behavior that falls outside the bounds of what is considered quote-unquote normal needs to be cured, fixed, or rehabilitated by trained professionals. The medical model has taught us that autism is a disorder that needs to be fixed. But there are many adults with autism who live full and productive lives in spite of the expectations of society. My guest today is Professor Sir Simon Baron-Cohen. Sir Baron-Cohen is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge, a fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge, and the director of the Autism Research Center in Cambridge. He has authored over 600 peer-reviewed scientific articles and many books about autism, including his most recent book entitled The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. Simon, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. You are one of the leading autism researchers in the world and have an impressive history of publication and and research. How did you become interested in studying autism? Yeah, I got interested in autism way back in the early 1980s. So that just shows that I've been doing this for many decades now. Um, and it was as a teacher in a very small unit for autistic kids. Um, back then, we didn't know much about autism. You know, those those were the days when they still blamed the parents for causing their child's autism, you know, really horrific, mostly psychoanalytic theories, a few psychological ones, but we didn't really understand that it was a biomedical condition, um, you know, that it had a genetic basis and, you know, um, involves differences in the way the brain is wired. But uh, yeah, I started off as a teacher and then went into do a PhD in research. Interesting. That's actually how I got my start, too. I was an English teacher and ended up in a classroom with many students with disabilities. And I was like, I haven't been trained to work with these kids. I don't know what to do. (laughs) Um, And it's really remarkable how much research has come out over the past, you know, 40 years, really, to help us better understand this. So kind of on that note, the origin of this interview came from me reading your most recent book, The Pattern Seekers, which argues that individuals with autism spectrum disorders have sort of been central to innovation and human progress, which is a unique perspective given (laughs) the culture and the society that we live in. So uh, what evidence do we have that uh, we've had individuals with autism in our society throughout history? So first of all, I'm just going to talk about language for just one minute, which is that I know in the U.S., you use the word uh, autism spectrum disorder. In Europe, um, and particularly in the UK, we we don't all use that language. You know, we kind of recognize, we call it autism for short. It is a biomedical condition, as I mentioned. You know, it's not simply a disorder. Depending on how you define disorder, you know, there is an element of people struggling. But we also see differences, uh, which comes under the heading of what's called neurodiversity that these are people who think differently, process information differently. And sometimes we see strengths or even talent. But, you know, in, in my book, the, the Pattern Seekers, I kind of talk about how autistic people love patterns. So when we kind of look at 
living autistic people today, that's what we see, that alongside their disability in social relationships and communication, there's this other side to them, which is this kind of love of predictability and um, rule-based systems. And in my book, I kind of lay out this idea that what's unique about the human brain is that we have a circuit which uh, looks for special patterns in the world that I call if and then patterns. If I take something and I do something to it, then I get a particular result. And I argue that this unique ability, this unique brain circuit, evolved about 100,000 years ago. And we know that because of the archaeological evidence. That if you look back at early modern humans, you see the first bow and arrow 75,000 years ago, which has got that if and then logic. You know, if I take an arrow and attach it to a stretchy fiber and release it, then it will fly. It's the if and then. So back to your question, how do we know that there were autistic people? Well, the kind of argument is that this ability to play with patterns and to identify these patterns, we can see it exists in the population today on a bell curve. Some people are just kind of average at it. Some people are above average or below average. We assume that that was true back with our ancestors who were playing with patterns. Uh, you know, the human genome hasn't changed that much in 100,000 years. But the genetic component was identified because many of the participants in our study also gave us a saliva sample. We did this in collaboration with a company called 23andMe. We found there was a genetic basis to this ability, partly genetic, and most relevant, that the genes involved in understanding patterns overlap with the genes involved in autism. And so it's interesting. There's a lot, there's actually a lot to address there. Sure. <laughs> it's interesting, kind of going back to where you started, that largely in modern culture, we have started to see autism or have we take the perspective that it's a disorder, it's a it's a deficit in, in some sort of way. But you're arguing essentially that autism may actually be what makes us uniquely human. And some of yeah. those traits are actually what's responsible for absolutely. human progress. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to ignore the disability aspect to autism. You know, it's there and that's why people get their diagnosis, that they're struggling, they need help. But the disability is in other er other areas of the human brain. Um, I argue it, there's a second circuit called the empathy circuit, which allows you to imagine other people's thoughts and feelings um, and also respond appropriately to somebody else's thoughts and feelings uh, with an appropriate emotion in yourself. You know, autistic people struggle with imagining what someone else might be thinking or feeling. Interestingly, they they have an appropriate response. Once they know that somebody, what someone's thinking or feeling, they do tend to respond just the way everybody else does. For example, if they know someone else is suffering, it upsets them and they want to they want to help. They want to alleviate other people's distress. But there is nevertheless a disability on the communication side on taking perspectives. But yeah, that's the disability part of autism. 
But what this new what this new book does is to say, well, don't just focus on what they struggle with. Let's also focus on what they can do and sometimes do better than non-autistic people. They're very interested in ordered, structured, systematic information. And we should be trying to nurture that. Right. No, I, I totally agree. It's interesting. Um, this notion of neurodiversity is relatively recent in the the disability field in general. Um, and kind of one of my questions has always been in some of my work is where did we start pathologizing some of these conditions that are just part of being human? I mean, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. I mean, where did we start to see it as a disorder instead of an aspect of diversity? Yeah. Um, so I have to be a bit careful with what I say here because, you know, we, we have to recognize that the American Psychiatric Association publishes a book called the, the DSM. I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of it, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, where they list all the different ways in which you can get a diagnosis in psychiatry but all of them are called disorders. You know, <laughs> there's hundreds of them. And of course, that's important to kind of demarcate that the person is having such a hard time that they need intervention, they need support. But yeah, along the way, we've lost sight of the fact that many of these uh, skills and experiences are normative. So empathy is normative. Um, I talked talk just now about systemizing or being able to understand systems. It's all normative. And some of them, you know, they shouldn't be linked to any sense of disorder. Neurodiversity, I'm very, I'm very pleased that this is finally getting the recognition. You know, again, for your listeners who aren't familiar with this word, it simply means that there's no single way for the brain to develop. There's lots of ways for the brain to develop. And there's no single way to be normal. Uh, there isn't sort of, you know, there isn't just one way to learn. There isn't just one way to process information. And we have to make space in the classroom or in the office for people who process information differently. Yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on with that. That's, uh, that's something that we're struggling with here in the U.S., <laughs> Given that we seem to publish a lot of the, uh, as you mentioned, <laughs> the statistical and the the diagnostic criteria. Um, I want to go back and revisit something that you brought up earlier about diversity and specifically about gender. Um, another major theme in your work has been exploring the cognitive differences between genders. And in some of your work, you argue that autism is in your words, an extreme male brain. Um, sort of given this perspective, what are your thoughts on autism in females? Yeah, just to kind of um, be really clear, when, when I and other researchers look at sex differences or gender differences, what we're looking at is differences on average. You know, if we just take a few examples that I think are uncontroversial, let's take language development. And it's been known for a long time that girls, on average, talk earlier than boys. And we find this across many cultures and many independent studies. So we can't just sweep it under the carpet because 
the study of gender differences is politically controversial. Uh, and the same applies to autism, that, you know, in clinics for autism, more boys are still, it's still the case, and more boys are diagnosed than girls. Um, doesn't mean that if you're female, you can't be autistic. Uh, it, it's just that gender is playing some role. And it may be partly cultural, but I would say that we've seen um, improvements in diagnosis of autism in girls and women. Um, you know, more girls and women are coming forward for a diagnosis. But despite that, there still seems to be this um, uneven sex ratio. More males than females get diagnosed. And then, the, you know, just turning to your other question about is autism an extreme of the typical male brain? So if we if we go back to these two psychological dimensions, empathy and systemizing, what we find in the general population is that females on average score higher on empathy tests, whether in childhood or in adulthood. Um, and what we heard earlier was that autistic people score below average on those tests. Equally on systemizing, we see the opposite pattern in the general population. Males, on average, score higher on systemizing tests. So these are tests like how interested are you in computers and how they work, or how, how interested are you in weather patterns. Why this is happening, we don't know. But given that autism is partly genetic, we touched on this earlier, it's also partly hormonal in that prenatal sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen are elevated in autistic kids, but prenatally. So maybe those hormones are also influencing brain development. And we know from animal research that the level of these hormones changes brain development uh, during pregnancy in the fetus. So I think more research is needed into these kind of complex scientific questions, but I don't think we can afford to just ignore the whole question of gender. Some, this, it's playing a role. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, gender is something that we're also, as we're evolving in our understanding of autism and neurodiversity, we're evolving in our understanding of gender and gender identity and what that means. And they're kind of happening hand in hand here. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we're going through massive cultural change. So gender, when we were young, used to be thought of as a binary thing. And now we've all uh, recognized that autism is, is non-binary. You know, it's a spectrum like everything else. And, you know, gender identity itself is is complex. Uh, it can be a mix of of choice. It can be a mix of biological factors. It can be a mix of cultural factors entering into all of it. Well, so one of the other things that has come up a few times through this conversation, but also emerges through your work, is this notion of the genetic component of autism. Um, and one of the ongoing sort of challenges out there, right, has been to identify a single unique genetic marker that causes autism so that we can hypothetically 
cure it, right? And there's a lot of debate going on now between people with autism and parents and clinicians and others about whether that is something that we should be doing. What are your thoughts on these ongoing efforts to, quote unquote, find a cure for autism? Right. Let's just back up a little bit. Um, First of all, there's no question that autism is partly genetic. Um, But that brings me to this point about we won't we shouldn't expect to find a single gene for autism. We know it's polygenic. That means many genes play a role. You know, but now on to the kind of more controversial topic of should we be looking for a cure? Uh, my own view is no, because autism is part of who you are. Just like for any of us, our genes make us who we are. And we shouldn't be trying to cure someone's identity any more than, you know, we should be trying to cure eye color or handedness if you're left-handed or right-handed. It's just part of who you are. We should be looking for treatments or interventions that target specific symptoms that cause distress. And I can give you some examples. Um, Let's say epilepsy, which is much more common in autistic people. I think most people would be very happy to have their epilepsy either controlled or cured. But the idea of targeting autism itself, I think would be a bit like, I don't know, it's like, um, it's almost targeting the whole person, it's who they are. You know, we should respect that people differ. This takes us just straight back to neurodiversity. We shouldn't be trying to eliminate diversity from the population. We should be celebrating diversity and making sure that people who are different feel included, don't feel threatened as if they're going to be eradicated, cured, prevented. So I see a role for autism genetics research, but I I would be really worried if genetics research was being used either for screening to, in quotes, prevent autism or to eradicate autism or to cure autism. Uh, because, you know, for too long, autistic people have not felt welcome in society. And we need to do everything we can to send a message um, that autistic people are welcome um, and to safeguard autistic people from efforts to in some way change them or um, expect that they should change just because they're not the same as others. Right. And one of the most hopeful things I've seen over the last, I guess it's been about 10 or 15 years in the U.S., though, is the rise of this autism self-advocacy movement. Just people with autism speaking out and really trying to make sure that their voices are heard and that we do value their contributions and their role in our society. Yeah. You know, if I go back to the beginnings of my career, you know, 30 or 40 years ago in autism, we we didn't really see those self-advocates, autistic self-advocates, partly because, again, this was, you know, DSM, it was the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, was it really only picking out autistic people who had a lot of co-occurring conditions like learning disabilities, uh, minimal language, Definitely not just autism, but autism plus a whole bunch of other conditions. 
Whereas today we see individuals who are autistic have good intelligence, good language, uh, can use computers and social media, and they can they can speak, you know, on behalf of themselves, and that's fantastic. Uh, but that does also mean that, um, in a very positive way, we are also witnessing, I don't know, the growth of autism as a civil rights issue. Autistic people saying, don't speak for us, let us speak for ourselves. Um, give us equal human rights, absolutely right. And questioning, you know, what are the scientists doing? If they're doing autism genetics, you know, to what end? What is, how is the data going to be used? So I'm, I'm really pleased that there's now uh, an opportunity, really, for dialogue between autistic people and researchers, uh, clinicians, educators, and that's how it should be. Well, at the end of this, I like to ask a single question. So one of the purposes of this show is to bring a broad range of research to a lay audience here. And you have a lifetime of experience. I mean, you have over 600 peer-reviewed publications. You've written popular science to hard science. I mean, you are incredibly prolific and diverse in your interests and in your writing. What's the most important lesson you've learned over your career as a researcher? Hmm. Um, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, that the field doesn't stay still. So we've been talking about autism as a, a field. You know, I've had to adapt every at every stage of that 40 years. So I guess the key message is open-mindedness, uh, an ability to listen, to, and to, yeah, to be to be flexible about you know how our understanding of autism is ever changing. So if people wanted to learn more about your work, where should they go? So we have a website, it's autismresearchcenter.com. We make all of our publications open access, so you can just download them for free. We do the same with all of our tests that we develop for research. So I've mentioned in this uh, program um, questionnaires like the Autism Spectrum Quotient. You can find out how many autistic traits you have the empathy quotient, uh, just to name two. And I should say that the other angle which comes out of our discussion is participatory research. We want autistic people and their parents to be much more involved in research, you know, where autistic people are giving us feedback on how the science should be done coming up with their own ideas of what science is important so that there's much more dialogue between the scientists and the autism community. Yeah, that that researcher participant engagement has become so important within the disability world. And it really does, I think, reflect that notion of uh, diversity and value that everybody brings something to the table and everybody can contribute in their own unique way and that we just have to as a society and even as researchers rethink right some of those assumptions that yeah we were perhaps trained in absolutely constantly challenging our own beliefs our own ideas and uh, 
I'm glad you've, you know, even though it's the tail end of our discussion, I'm glad you've introduced the word value. Because what was missing, I think, for a long time was the recognition that all autistic people have equal value. It doesn't matter what the type of disability they have. You know, every human being has equal value. And that's something that we really have to keep at the front of our attention when we're thinking about how are we uh, designing services? How are we thinking about working with autistic people? Are we listening? The, the, whole, the whole concept, really, of value goes right to the, the heart of human rights. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much, Simon, for your time today. This has been a fascinating and broad-ranging conversation, and I'm just extremely grateful for your time and your expertise and your contributions to the field and to this program. So thank you. Well, thank you, and uh, and to you, Matt, for all the great work you're doing in Utah. That's Professor Sir Simon Baron-Cohen from Cambridge University and Director of the Autism Research Center, talking about his most recent book, The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. Simon, thanks for your time. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I am Matthew Wappet. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>